following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, I want to um, let you behind the curtain here just a little bit as concerns sermon preparation. Um, sometimes I have an idea of where I, where I want to go with a particular Bible passage or a particular topic, and then I sit down to do it, and that idea gets kind of blown off course by something else that really catches my attention in the text. Um, and see, what happens is, uh, with a series like this is I, I plan out the sermon titles and the texts weeks ahead of, time, ahead of time, and I write them out and put them on the website and announce them and all those things, and then I prepare them, you know, in the week, or sometimes if I'm really ahead of the game, the two weeks ahead, and uh, sometimes it just doesn't line up exactly the way I thought it was going to. And usually when that happens, I, uh, I um, just change the title and nobody knows the difference. <laughs> and that's totally fine. Uh, but I, I have to make a decision. Do I stick with what I had originally or do I go to this new thing or I try to do both? Usually trying to do both is a terrible idea. Um, that's called foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> the other thing that can happen sometimes is that, you know, man, the certain parts of the Bible are very confusing. And um, sometimes I hit a passage and I read it and I go, huh? And I have to be honest, that, uh, as a pastor, that's sort of a terrifying experience. <laughs> After all, aren't I supposed to be the one who knows all the stuff? And uh, why didn't I study Greek better when I took it in college? And why don't I read the Bible more every day? And uh, what if they find out that I'm actually a fraud or a, an income poop? <laughs> why can't I just skip the hard passages like everybody else probably does? <laughs> Could I maybe just call in sick? Um, but the truth is, at the end of the day, if I press through this stuff, I usually count it as a privilege to, be, to have been forced to do that, um, to have to wrestle with some of the more challenging passages. Uh, and uh, more than that, I consider it a great privilege to be able to do it all in this place, serving with all of you, because um, I actually have a great deal of trust in all of you, that I can be a little transparent and say the things that I just said and not be... Um, ridden out on a rail or have you write a letter to uh, my superintendent or something like that. Anyway, the point is this, as you can probably tell. Both of those problems hit me this week. (laughs) Um, My original idea got knocked around by something that caught my attention in the text, and what caught my attention in the text was a very confusing couple of verses, and I didn't quite know what to do with them. So I came to that decision point, do I stick with what I was going to say, do I say something new, or do I foolishly try to do both? And I'm going to foolishly try to do both. Um, And the reason I'm going to do that is because I actually think that the original idea that I thought would come out of this passage when I looked at it very briefly a month or two ago, that original idea is really important to me. It explains a very crucial bit of history and theology that I think all educated and informed Christian people should be thinking about. Um, but this other thing, I can't, I can't let it go. Um, so I, I don't want to just like ignore that either. So today's passage is from John 5, 19 through 29. And uh, you remember 
if you were here last week, that Jesus had just healed a lame man, but he did it on the Sabbath. The, the religious law dictated that there was one day in which he couldn't do any work, and that included healing people. And so he was in trouble with the Jewish teachers of the law, the Pharisees. And he had answered their question with this bold and alarming statement. You may remember that he said this, My father is still working, and I also am still working. Now, in saying this, Jesus was connecting himself to God the Father, who had established the, the Sabbath as a thing in one of the stories of creation by working for six days and resting for one day. And Jesus is saying, I am one with him. I am like him in this respect. I was there when we worked together in creation and rested, and we are still working now. There is no rest for the work of healing when you are one with God. And uh, that started to get him in some trouble, and today's passage, he's going to expand on this theme um, quite extensively, actually. And uh, that's the original thing I wanted to talk about, is this connection between Jesus and the Father. We're going to get to it, like I said, but I'll tell you what, let's look at this text together. If you're using the red Bibles that we've provided, that's page 866, uh, John 5, 19 through 29. If you're uh, using your own Bible, you can look it up, but I don't know what page it's on. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and what I'd like you to do, and this will give you a hint as to what the, the challenge or problem became for me in this passage, I want you to, to look for the answer to this question in this passage. The question is this, how do we receive eternal life? How does Jesus say we ret- receive eternal life? Okay? So let's read John five nineteen through 29. You can follow along on your Bibles or you can just listen. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be astonished. Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the the Father. And anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That is the word of the Lord. And traditionally you would say, thanks be to God. Um, And today you might say, I think. (laughs) So if you've been in church for any amount of time, depending on what type of church, you already had an answer to the question that I asked you to look for the answer to, which is, how do we receive eternal life? 
But did you see, in trying to answer that question, where I might have come across a problem in this particular passage? There is, it seems to me, a conflict between verse 24, what that says about eternal life, and verse 29, what that verse says about eternal life. Or how are we saved would be the kind of churchy way of saying it. According to verse 24, what is the answer to the question, how do we receive eternal life? Anyone who hears and believes. This is the standard Protestant answer to the question. We are saved by our faith in Jesus and who he is. Not by good works, but by faith. What does verse 29 say about how we are saved? Two types of things you can be resurrected to. (laughs) And if you've done good, you are resurrected to what? Life. And if you've done evil, you're resurrected to condemnation. So, to say nothing of all this stuff about judgment and, and... some very complex things in the rest of this passage, I was just frustrated by this apparent contradiction in these two verses in the same passage on the same Sunday. I mean, if they were different Sundays, at least some people wouldn't be there both weeks. I could preach both things. (laughs) We have one that answers the traditional Protestant way that says we're saved by faith, one that answers in the not-quite-so-Protestant way that our works actually do matter in eternity. So I thought about this a great deal. I wrote it out, kind of journaled it a little bit. I prayed about it. I did a Lectio Divina prayer meditation on the passage. did all the things you're supposed to do to break through the logjam of a a difficult text, and still I can't claim to have gotten a so-called word from the Lord about this. I can't claim that I definitively understand what the answer to this question is. But I do think I was able, um, by the grace of God, uh, to make some sense of it. So let me give you a very simple explanation of what I think is going on here in this tension in one sentence. The sentence is this. For Jesus, there is no separation between faith and action. He says both things because... They are not meant to be mutually exclusive, separate ideas. Belief in him works that are good. For Jesus, these are not supposed to be separated. In my opinion, take it for what it is, this is outside the text of the Bible, just me talking to you, I think that that is a false dichotomy that is probably the result of of a gigantic argument we had in the church in the 16th century called the Protestant Reformation. You know how when you have an argument with somebody, you start out like this far apart and you're arguing back and forth and, you, it, 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 you know, as the argument proceeds and gets a little more rancorous, you, you just kind of push away a little bit more and suddenly you're this far apart and then by the end of this drag down beat it out argument, you're way, way far apart from each other. 
And in the course of disagreeing on something that was this much of a disagreement, you now have this much of a chasm in between you. Those of you listening on podcasts, I'm making motions with my fingers. Right? <laughs> Use your imagination. Um, do you, has this ever happened to anybody, or is this just me? Okay. I think that that happened during the Protestant Reformation. And so there were some very real concerns that Luther and his cohorts raised, and then the response was not gracious, and the response to the response was even less gracious. And if you read these arguments between uh, Luther and Erasmus, for example, <laughs> um, you know, the things he says about the Pope are not very Christ-like, etc. Um, where was I? For Jesus, there is not supposed to be a separation between faith and action. These things are supposed to go together. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, the second sign was when Jesus healed the royal official's son from 20 miles away. A man came to him desperate, pleading with him to come back, and Jesus said, go, your son will live. And the Bible says, the text says in verse 50 of chapter 4, we looked at this pretty closely a couple weeks ago, the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken, believed the word that Jesus had spoken, and started on his way. He moved. Faith immediately led to action. They, were, they could not have been separate in that account or nothing would have come of it. You know, and then very famously, Jesus, in another part of the Gospels, is prophesying and describing the, the last judgment, and he separates the sheep and the goats, not by those who had perfect faith and those who didn't believe, but by the fact that one group of people cared for the poor and the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the, the imprisoned. And he said, if you've done it for them, you've done it for me. And the other group of people didn't do any of those things. And he said, if you didn't do it for them, you didn't do it for me. Depart into darkness. Resurrected to condemnation, <laughs> you might say. So I actually don't think that, that in the words of Jesus we ever really see that one or the other of these things is all that matters talks about both faith and action. This concept is echoed in other parts of the New Testament. You look at the book of James. Um, I didn't put this on the screen, but you, if you want to uh, follow along, it's James 2.14. These are some famous words of the Bible. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? Rhetorical question. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Which, as far as I know, not an English major, is the opposite of alive. <laughs> by the way, Martin Luther wanted to remove the book of James from the Bible. <laughs> Martin Luther called the uh, epistle of James or the book of James, an epistle full of straw. <laughs> he wanted to cut it right out. Wouldn't that have made his argument against those Catholics a lot easier? Man. How would that be? How would that fly today in the, uh, the era of social media? If uh, somebody just didn't like a certain book of the Bible, didn't agree with what they were trying to uh, advance, and they just said, you know what, let's just keep the Bible, but maybe well, let's not put that one in there. He had the luxury of translating the Bible into the vernacular uh, language of the day and, 
and he tried to pull it off, but even then it didn't work. Anyway, <laughs> those of you who know your Bible really well might be saying, but what about Paul? You read James. What about Paul? Paul was the not by works but by faith guy. What did he say? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. But recall Paul's context. Paul, for the most part, was writing to legalistic Jewish Christians, people who had converted from a, like a lifetime of observing the law as the source of their salvation, now into this new reality where it's by faith in Christ and not by adherence to the law, because uh, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, and etc., all the things that Paul said. Jewish Christians, in other words, who didn't seem to get it, that the law was dead. By the way, if you want to hear Paul making the other argument, I won't read this to you, but write, write this down. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58. Look that up on your own time if you want to go down this rabbit hole a little bit deeper. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 58. Starts out with this great phrase, Listen, I will tell you a mystery. <laughs> and it gets better from there. Um, so we have to remember Paul's audience, though, with this, this faith and works thing. Um, in other words, I don't think Paul would have disagreed with Jesus about the good work stuff. It's a difference in emphasis. But for that matter, consider Jesus' audience. Remember who he's talking to in this passage. This is a group of people who had accused him of breaking God's holy law by healing a man on the Sabbath day. And perhaps what he's saying to them at the end of this passage, in the verse 29 about resurrected to good, or resurrected to life, and resurrected to condemnation, perhaps what he's saying to them is this, listen, you law lovers, you want to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Literally. If you want to make that your standard, be my guest. So, like I said, I, I, don't, I don't consider that as definitive an answer as maybe I would have liked to be able to give you this morning, but that's how I came to some peace with this tension between verse 24 and 29, and, and I hope for you it's... Um, somewhat helpful. But I think both verses are true, and that it's folly to ignore either one of them. How's that for postmodern? Now, the original thing that I wanted to talk to you today about was the relationship between the Father and the Son. And I do, as I said, think this is a really important concept for Christians to understand. And uh, as we've said, what Jesus said about that relationship between him and the Father is precisely what got him into so much trouble with the Pharisees and the other Jewish authorities. I mean, consider the ways, just in a kind of a rapid-fire bullet list here, the, the ways that he claims to be one or connected with the Father. They're one in action. Verse 19, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. They are one in love. You see that in verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Verse 21, they are one in conquering death and giving life, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, which was a very accepted 
canonical Jewish understanding, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. Verse 21 continues, they are united in fact that, that the Father delegates judgment to the Son. And there's, that, that takes you right to the sheep and the goats, by the way. They are inextricably linked in receiving honor. Verse 23, anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And that was maybe the cherry on top of this um, Sunday that he was giving the Pharisees. You can see, first of all, why Jesus got into hot water with them. The, the Jewish people who were so fiercely monotheistic, I mean, the, the, the biblical slogan that probably deter, like, describes the center of Jewish belief best is the, it's called the Shema Yisrael for what it's the first two lines of the first two words of this line Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. One. And these people who held Yahweh, God the Father, to be so high above all other things and all other gods is how the Old Testament repeatedly uh, describes it, which is kind of fascinating. But the very first commandment of the ten that were etched in stone is, you shall have no other gods before me. So for Jesus to say what he's saying is big problems in that day and in that culture. But in fact, it's kind of big problems for us too, isn't it, in some ways? Wouldn't we sort of prefer to separate the warrior God of the Old Testament from the Jesus of peace that we find and kind of like and want to hug in the New Testament? Talk about a sermon for another day, huh? That's a whole series for another day. But I think you can see, and I, I think you may agree, that those of us who want to call ourselves followers of Jesus... We have to accept and embrace this, this connectedness, this oneness between the Father and the Son because he himself leaves no doubt about it. It's right there in his words. I and the Father are one. Well, I think we'd better leave it there for now. Um, Thank you for bearing with me as I tried to give two sermons in one. Uh, Would you pray with me? God, our Father, thank you for the challenges of Scripture, including the ones we've seen today, the one about the nature of our salvation, the source of it, how it's worked out, and the one about your relationship with your Son, Jesus, our Lord. We pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit you would help us to navigate these challenges, to embrace you in all that you are, to receive your grace. pray these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God. Amen. Before we come to communion... I want to read to you a really fascinating thing. Um, as the early church struggled to articulate what Christians believe about Jesus, you know, there were attacks on that from one side or the other, a conservative wing or a liberal wing, however you might define it in that day. 
most of the disagreements, most of the attacks against orthodoxy had to do with who Jesus was. Was he God? Was he human? Of course, the orthodox Christian view is that he is fully God and fully human in one of the great mysteries of the universe. But there were some who said, no, he's just a man. And there were some who said, no, he was just a spirit. And they, they argued back and forth about this. Um, and it, it's one of the reasons why we had the Apostles' Creed, but then we also had the Nicene Creed. <laughs> and that, that one that we said today came from 325. Uh, I don't believe it says anything that's inconsistent with what Christians believed in the f- first and second century. But by the time we got to the beginning of the fourth century, there was a rather big argument about it, and they had to, to say something definitive. Well, there was another argument, <laughs> as you can imagine, in the middle of the fifth century. Uh, and the, the, I'm going to read to you this definition from a council that happened in 451, the Council of Chalcedon. This is a this is a definition of what Orthodox Christians, and I mean Orthodox with a small o, which would include all of us, um, I hope. This is, what, this is what we believe about Jesus. And it's, it's pretty dense. It's pretty heavily theological. I would encourage you just to sit back and listen to these words. I didn't put it on the screen. It would have taken up the whole screen, even with small type. So it's going to take me a minute to read it. But it's such a brilliant statement. And it really is beautiful if you can kind of get it. It doesn't really say, it doesn't use a lot of big words or anything, but it's, it's, anyway, I'll stop prefacing it. I want to use this as a meditation as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord Jesus. This is the definition of Chalcedon. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, I'll, I'll pause here and apologize in advance for the uh, gender exclusive language here. It was the fifth century. They, they didn't have the uh, Chicago Manual of Style just yet, but Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhood and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, (laughs) wink, Um, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Isn't that kind of a brilliant and beautiful statement? (laughs) 
maybe a little confusing. And if, you, if you'd like to look it up when you get home, I wouldn't blame you if you want to read it. Um, but I wanted to end with that today because that, you know, it's part of who we are. We are, uh, one of our values is roots. We look back to the history of the church to help us understand the scriptures. And I think this is a, uh, one of the greatest examples of how we do that. It is that Jesus who, on the night he was betrayed, sat with his disciples and had a meal, bread and wine, and instructed them that as often as they came together to do it, they would remember him. His body represented in the bread, broken for them. His blood represented in the the wine. And in our case, we also have a non-alcoholic juice representing the blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Each time we come together as a community and hear the word proclaimed, whether it's me or somebody else, we respond to the word at his table. And so if you are following Jesus today, I'd invite you to come to this table in confidence, receive as food for your souls these sacraments of bread and wine. May it be for you his body and his blood. May it draw you into unity with each other and other Christians. And may it help you to remember the nature of Jesus fully God and utterly human. Let's continue to worship him together. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.